So the church puts itself in a really poor position when it begins to make its decisions based on politics or pragmatism. Now, if you don't know what pragmatism means, that's okay. Because there's a lot of different definitions and I had to look it up to make sure I was understanding it properly. Uh, But basically, pragmatism is when the church or anybody focuses more on what works than doing what's right. And so, and I put politics and pragmatism together because, for one, just throughout history, we've seen when, when a church begins to get focused on, too much on politics, it's for pragmatic reasons. It's because that's what's working at the time. And, you know, another way to just say all of this is the church puts itself in a difficult, in a bad or a poor position when we focus more on doing what works than doing what God has called us to do. And I want to give you an example um, of, of how I've seen this go poorly in, in numerous churches over the years. And, and I want to make sure I'm not misunderstood when I say this, because I'm often misunderstood when I say this. People will hear me say this and say something like, you don't think children's ministry is a good thing? No, that's not what I'm saying. But here's what I've heard in almost every church I've connected with throughout the United States. We need to have a children's ministry because that will help us attract young families. Okay? I've heard that in almost every church I've been in or any church I've connected with. And it's probably said in every church across the United States. This, we need to have a children's ministry because that will help us attract young families. Um, and the question is, what's the, the, the foundation of that statement? Is it based on what God wants us to do or is it based on what works? It's based on what works. It's based on pragmatics. And it doesn't end up, it doesn't result well in the end. And here's, here's why this doesn't work well. When, when kind of the, the reason you're doing something is based on pragmatics or politics, uh, that changes the way you interact with things. That changes the way you do things. And what happens is if the only reason you're doing something is because it works, what happens when it doesn't work the way you think it should work? Or what happens when it stops working completely? Um, you start changing the way you do things so that they start working the way you want them to work. And so uh, you, you're like, okay, well, if we're doing ministry this way, we need to change it. We need to do it this way because that's what's going to attract the young families or that's what's going to work for us. And what ends up happening is you stop asking the question, what does God want us to do? And you only ask the question, what will attract the young families? This is just one example. Churches get caught up in this often. But but what ends up happening is you, you go down this road of kind of shaping all of the ministries of your church around what works, and you have all of these ministries that look like they work on the outside, but are actually not what God has called you to do, which means they're dishonoring to God. And, you know, the church has found itself in positions like this repeatedly throughout history. One, one uh, pastor 
that I've kind of considered a mentor, and he's like one of those dead mentors, I just read his books, is, uh, is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany uh, during Hitler's reign. And, uh, and Bonhoeffer, when you read him, he looked out at the church and he saw the church in Germany become completely overrun with politics and pragmatism. And he watched churches start to make calculations based on what's going to work or what's not going to work, rather than on doing what God has called them to do. And so he watched churches say, well, we shouldn't speak out against Hitler and what he's doing, because if we do that, our church is going to shut down, and then who's going to reach the lost? So it's better for us to be quiet or even say approval to him, because that's how we're going to reach the lost. Right? That's how, when people look at Germany and say, how in the world was the church quiet? It's because they got completely focused on politics and pragmatism. And uh, in one of the biographies I was reading about Bonhoeffer, it said this about him, that he knew that if these questions were not addressed properly, questions about the church and everything, one would be reduced to merely political answers or pragmatic answers, and then you'd begin to veer away from the true gospel toward worshiping a God made in one's own image rather than God himself. So, Whenever the church begins to do that, um, it puts itself on this path away from the true God toward an idol made in our own image, which means the church ends up being destroyed. Um, Which is the irony of it that when the church tries to focus all of its time and energy on what works, it doesn't work. And and we're going to see that in our passage today, um, that that's what is going on in what we're looking at. And, and just to make sure we remember kind of where we left off, because, you know, this is all one big story, and so it's important not to forget what happened last week when we talk about this week. Remember that Jesus had left Jerusalem and he had went off into the wilderness because Things were getting really tense in Jerusalem. He went off into the wilderness. They preached the gospel there. People were believing. People weren't trying to kill him. It was like this golden time of ministry. And then his friend Lazarus gets sick and eventually dies. And so Jesus comes back. Not to Jerusalem, but he's back in Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And, you know, the disciples don't want him to go back, right? Because the disciples are reminding him, remember last time you were there, they were trying to kill you. But Jesus goes back anyways, and he raises Lazarus from the dead, right? He reveals to everyone that he's the resurrection and the life. And don't forget that there were a lot of people there that saw this. We had read many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so, like, as we read through the story, it's fairly clear that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are pretty well-connected people. They're pretty popular. And, and so when their brother's sick and, and then eventually dies, a ton of people come out to console them, to comfort them, gathered there. Which means there were a ton of people there to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. 
And the initial response is what we would assume. We read many of the Jews who had come with Mary had seen what he did, and they believed in him. All right, so we have a picture of there's many people there, and then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and many of those many people believed in Jesus as a result. But as is typical in the Gospel of John, not all of them did. We read, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And this isn't just an innocent like reporting to the Pharisees. They're not just going to the Pharisees saying, hey, we just thought you should know. Um, this is written and put in the context that they had some malicious intent here. They, they're not just telling the Pharisees about it. They're coming to the Pharisees saying, you need to do something about this guy. And so the Pharisees listen. We read the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They gather the council, which is also called other, other places in the Bible as the Sanhedrin. Okay? And so they gather the Sanhedrin and we're not quite sure of exactly who all's on the Sanhedrin. We know that the chief priest is part of that. There's priests a part of it. Most likely Pharisees and Sadducees and other religious leaders. Like this is one of their kind of highest courts of the Jewish people. And so they, they kind of gather their legislature together to figure out what to do about Jesus. And they're kind, you can kind of get the sense that they're like wringing their hands, right? Like, what are we going to do? We've tried everything to try to like neutralize this guy. We've tried to scare him. We've threatened to kick people out of the synagogue, to completely kick them out of the Jewish people if they believe in him. We've made threats. We've done all of this, and nothing is working. What can we do? But notice, just notice the way that they're thinking. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both, my emphasis, our place and our nation. And the question is, why are they making the decision? Is it about, are they asking, what does God want us to do here? Or are they asking, what's going to work? It's, it's all politics, it's all pragmatics, right? They, they're seeing what's going on, and they're seeing that if Jesus keeps on doing what he's doing, the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our place, which means our positions of power and authority in the legislature, in the Sanhedrin. He's going to take away our place and our nation. And uh, what makes this extra interesting there's a little speculation here, but in, in my study this week, I, I came across a little fact I'd never heard before, that most of these Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests were in the Sanhedrin because the Romans put them there. So they were kind of like bought and paid for by the Romans. And so these leaders are saying, 
well, we don't want to bite the hand that's feeding us, right? We don't want to anger the people that put us in this position of power. And so, like, if we do that, we're going we're gonna to get kicked out of here. And, and if we lose our position of power and leadership, what good's that going to do anybody? We, we have to figure out what to do so we can stay in power, so we can do what's best for the nation. But they can't figure out what to do. And so Caiaphas speaks up. And Caiaphas is kind of like a political pro. Um, he had been the high priest and been serving on the Sanhedrin for about 15 years at this point, somewhere in that range. And so he had been in politics long enough. He knew how to get things done. He knew how, to, how politics worked. And so he's seeing the hand-wringing going on in the Sanhedrin, and he gets up and he kind of rebukes them all, right? You know nothing. He basically says, <laughs> Siri. He calls up, like, you're all a bunch of fools. You have no idea. Like, why are you wringing your hands? The solution is simple. It's obvious. He says, you don't understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Right? He says, that's the obvious solution. Jesus needs to die. That's the only thing that's going to work. Right? And, and notice how he, he, he positions it. He, he appeals to their own selfish nature. Right? He says, this is what's better for you. If, if you want to keep your positions of power and authority, if you want to stay on the Sanhedrin, the only thing you can do is kill him. Because if you let him keep going on doing what he's doing, you will lose your position of power and authority and influence. And, and he even throws in like it's better for the nation, right? It's better that one man would die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish, right? And, and one of the things you notice is that in the midst of all of this, like the good of the nation continues to be brought up over and over and over again. But really, underneath it, they don't care that much about the nation. They care about themselves, their own position, their own power. And, and it's like, well, if we, if we want to do what's best, what's, what's right for the people, we need to kill him. And, and you kind of see some of that stuff I was talking about at the beginning, right? You could see some of these hints going back to what was going on in the German people. Making calculations. Well, it's best for the people if we stay quiet. It's best for the people if we support and approve of Hitler. And what you see in the midst of all of this is that these religious leaders, and I'm going to put that in quotes, they fear the Romans much more than they fear their God. That's a bad place to be. And... Uh, the irony in all of this is that all of their plans and all of their schemes accomplish nothing because the nation's destroyed anyways. Uh, D.A. Carson said this, so eventually Jesus died, but the nation perished anyways. Not because of Jesus' activity, but because of the constant mad search for political solutions where there was little spiritual renewal. Justice is sacrificed to expediency. 
right? In all of their scheming and all of their efforts to try to save the nation apart from God, it all failed. They actually were the ones that destroyed the nation. And it's a reminder of the psalm that we read at the beginning of of the service. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city or the nation or the church, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's vain. Pointless, it's meaningless that you rise up early, go late to bed, eating the bread of anxious toil, he gives his beloved sleep. I should sometimes just do a whole sermon series on this psalm because there's a lot in here. But the point this morning is it doesn't matter how political you are, how pragmatic you are, if the Lord's not part of what you're doing. It will fail. And it's all meaningless. It's pointless. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how, how strategic you are, how hard you work. You can get up early in the morning and work late into the night, strategizing and figuring out, working to bring about all this change. And the point is, if the Lord's not part of it, it's all a waste of time. And if you only ever focus on what works rather than on what God wants, it's a waste of time. And it won't work in the long run anyways. And in the midst of this, the gospel writer, John, has a, he comes in with his, his, John likes to use irony a lot. And uh, he comes in with this really, I think it's a beautiful line of irony where he says, you know, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You know, and I find that oddly beautiful, (laughs) Because John's saying, you know, when Caiaphas said these wicked, evil words, he was actually speaking the words of God, even though Caiaphas didn't mean those words. And, and there's a beauty in that. Like, I find this more beautiful than God speaking through a donkey <laughs> in the Old Testament. I mean, God is speaking through an extremely corrupt religious leader. And even though Caiaphas didn't mean what he was saying, God used the words that were coming out of his mouth to show the nation the truth that it actually was better that Jesus would die for the nation. And John points out not just the nation of Israel, but the true nation of Israel, which is all of the people of God gathered into that one people. But Jesus wasn't dying to save them from the Romans. His salvation, his mission was much more important than that. To die to save them from the Romans would be this temporary little blip in, the, in eternity. No, Jesus was coming for a bigger salvation. He came to save the nation from their sins. To bring a true salvation that would last 
for eternity. And it's a reminder for us that that's the only true salvation that comes. And it's a reminder that the only way a person, a church, a community, or a nation is saved is by believing in Jesus Christ for the complete forgiveness of their sins. Um, And, you know, I've shared this quote before, but it's one of my favorite quotes. It's from D.A. Carson, and he says this about Jesus. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. So he sent us a savior. And the question that really needs to kind of press in on all of us this morning is, do we believe that that was what's best? That God sent us a savior? And do we believe that it was actually better for God to send us a savior rather than a politician? I mean, it is an election year. We've got debates and political advertisements and all of that going on. I mean, there's a point where we think, it'd be kind of nice if he sent us a politician. I mean, things are kind of a mess. What if God would send us a politician to, like, fix the economy? What if God would send us a politician to help care for the poor and the needy? What if God would send us a politician to help restore justice and order in our country? Like, doesn't that sound nice? But does it still, do you still believe that it was better that God sent us a savior rather than a politician? Because our answer to that changes changes everything. Because what, what ends up happening is the moment you start to think, well, maybe it would be better if he sent us a politician, then all of your hope is put in the wrong place. And all of your hope ends up rising and falling based on the current election cycle, whatever policies and procedures are being put in by whatever political parties in control, or... The moment you start to wonder about that, maybe you've given up hope in the, po- the political parties of the United States. But then you start putting hope in yourself. Well, I'm going to be the change where I'm at. And I'm going to stay up late at night strategizing about how to save my community, how to save my nation, how to do this. It's all about me, and you'll just focus all of your time and energy in that. And all of your hope then will just revolve around whether your current project is working or not working. When churches put their hope in these things, all of our hope rises or falls based on whatever current ministry program we're trying to run. And what we've been reminded this morning is when we focus on these things rather than on what God wants, 
It doesn't matter how hard you work, how hard you try, all of it will be wasted. And actually, all of your hopes and dreams will be dashed upon the rocks because you've put your hopes and dreams in someone or something other than God. Um, you've put your hope in something that works or in you, your own self at, who works or in a politician that gets things done. But unless the Lord builds the house or the church or the nation, all of the laborers labor in vain. So we put our hope in Christ, the Savior that God sent. Because the only way a person, a church, a community, or a nation can actually be saved. And when we put our hope in him, then we keep our eyes on him. And uh, I want to end with a a final picture of what this looks like. And it's going to be another quote. And I know I've had a ton of quotes today, but sometimes I can't help myself. Um, But... The point has been we need to focus more on what God wants than to focus on what we think works. And this quote from John Calvin, I thought, gave us a really good example of how to, how to live this way. Here's what he said. Here's the only way to deliberate in a proper and holy manner. First, we ought to inquire what is the will of God. Next, do it. That's the, that's the summarized version. Next, we ought to follow boldly whatever he enjoins and not be discouraged by any fear, though we were besieged by a thousand deaths. For our actions must not be moved by any gust of wind, but must be constantly regulated by the will of God alone. He who boldly despises dangers, or at least rising above the fear of them, sincerely obeys God, will at length have a prosperous result for, contrary to the expectations of all, God blesses that firmness which is founded on obedience to his word. The only thing that works is doing what God wants, following him. Even when it seems contrary to all expectation, even when it seems contrary to the world around us, um, that's what it looks like to be focused more on what God wants than on what works. And that's what it looks like to truly put our hope in our God and our Savior. We go where He tells us to go, we do what He tells us. We've been reminded this morning of our own pride how we often think of ourselves as more important, think of ourselves as smarter, more powerful than we actually are. We often think that we can even outwork you, outthink you. So, Father, we come to you and we just confess. Father, we're sorry for our own arrogance, our own pride, We're sorry for not trusting you, obeying you, following you. So, Father, we ask that not only you would forgive us, not only would you cleanse us from those sins, but we also ask that you would fill us anew with your spirit, 
and continue to transform our hearts, our minds, our souls. And transform us so that we see the world rightly. We see ourselves for who we are and we see you in your glory, your power, your might. And that we would leave from here fully, more fully trusting you for who you are and what you've done and what you've called us to do. Father, may we leave here this morning focused more on what you want than on what we think works. Father, guide us in that as we seek you and decide and determined to follow your will. We just we pray that your spirit would guide us powerfully through each moment of the day and just help us to continually rest in you and trust in you as our true and complete Savior. And all God's people said, Amen.